You are listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar, brought to you weekly by Stanford Technology Ventures Program at Stanford University School of Engineering. Without further ado, I would like to introduce our special guest today. Katie Rodan has come to us all the way from the East Bay. And uh, she is a remarkable person and quite an unusual speaker for this series. And I think you'll see at the end why uh, we feel very lucky that she's going to come to join us. Uh, she is the co-founder of Proactive Solution. And I'm not going to ask you how many people have used this product, but I certainly know that there are, it says 3 million, that I understand that that's old data, that 10 million people have used this product and have obviously found it to be very, very uh, helpful to them. So we're going to hear about the history of this, uh, the development of this company, which I know is very, very interesting. And uh, for someone who started out as a physician who decided to start this company, this is a very interesting career path. Uh, in addition, just to give you a little bit of academic background, uh, Katie started out her school at UVA. She then went to medical school at USC and ended up at Stanford for her residency. So without further ado, Katie Rodan. Oh, thank you. I have to figure out where to stand with this big thing right here. Um, well, it's great to be here. Uh, I have to tell you, when I started at Stanford in 1984, I never dreamed, and I was there as a resident, I never dreamed that I would be coming back here 22 years to talk to a group of budding entrepreneurs uh, about a business that I helped uh, design. So it's great to be here. And I thought what I'd share with you is a little bit about my story. And before I do, though, I want to remind you, for those of you who had a chance to see and hear Tina's lecture, she gave these 10 points, the first 10 points, about all the things that she wished that she'd known when she was 20. And I thought they were just amazing. And I think as I go through my story, you can see where these points fit in, because I think each one of them is represented in the story that I'm about to tell you. And I added number 11, because I remember when I was sitting in class, I used to think, okay, why am I learning this? What am I doing? Or I'd have a job and it didn't really seem to make sense. You know, what's this all about? Will I ever use this material? But now I'm old enough to tell you that everything comes around full circle and you do end up using that information and all those skills and resources on your way to becoming an entrepreneur. So, let me see. I am not, I, I have a low-tech company, so not very technological. <laughs> Let's see, which one do I push? There, spacebar. Okay. Nothing happening. Okay. Um, let me stand over here. This was my first entrepreneurial venture. I was 13 years old and I was a pretty good seamstress. So I saw a purse in a store and my parents weren't really about to buy it for me. It was just a little too expensive. So I thought, well, you know, what the heck, I'll try. I'll see if I can make it. So I made the purse and I worked to school, to middle school. <laughs> I was in like seventh grade. And I got a lot of compliments from my friends. And everybody was asking me where to get it. And I started to think, you know, maybe there's a business here. Maybe there's something that I can do to make some money. Uh, and so uh, at 13, I was bitten by the entrepreneurial bug, and I learned all about wholesale, I learned about retail, I learned about cost of goods, you know, getting things 
there on time. Because what I did with this purse is I went down to the local mall and I found a store called the Light Brigade. And I approached the owner of the Light Brigade and I said, you know, my friends are all asking me about this. And he said, wow, I'll take a dozen. So there you have it. I got started in business. And by the time that I finished high school, I had a bank account. I bought myself a car. And I was sort of on my way. And then what happened? I went to college, and I was sort of derailed from that direction by my parents, because I grew up in a very intellectual family. My dad is a federal judge. My mother's a microbiologist. And they um, really encouraged me to go into law as a career. Why? Because everybody in my family are lawyers. And I was very loquacious, so they thought, this is a good field for you to go into. So I'm going along. I'm a history major at the University of Virginia. Excuse me one second. History major. And my life suddenly changes dramatically between my third and my fourth year of college. And what happens is I take a job in a cardiovascular research lab. Now, I got this job really by fluke because my cousin had had the job. She was leaving to go travel, and she said, Katie, take it. You don't need any science. You don't need any medical background, any science experience. You know, don't worry about it. For what you're going to be doing here, it doesn't matter, and it pays really well. So, all right, so I took the job. And I got into this lab, which was in Los Angeles, where they were developing a drug to treat post-heart attack patients. And I was amazed because there were, you know, it was just such an exciting place to be. There were actually two pre-med students from Stanford, very bright, a med student from UCLA, bunch of doctors, researchers, and it was, and then there was me. <laughs> and there happened to have been one other girl who worked in the lab who, like me, did not come from any sort of science background. And I just loved everything I was learning. And one day, I'm having lunch with this other girl, and I asked her, so Linda, what are you going to do after the summer? And she looks at me, and she says, well, I'm going to take pre-med and I'm going to go to medical school. And I, she saw my jaw just probably just drop and hit the floor. And she looked at me and she goes, you know, it only takes a year of science. Even you could do it. <laughs> so I thought, you know, no one has ever said that to me before. No one has even suggested to me that I could go to medical school. And I told my parents, and my parents said, what? I thought they were going to drop the phone. Uh, you know, you're not good at science. You know, how do we know that? Uh, we, I don't know. You're just not good at it. You need to go to law school. So I didn't listen to my parents. And I went back to the University of Virginia, and I met with the pre-med advisor and did the, all the work that was necessary, and I went to medical school. And from the day that I started medical school, I knew that I wanted to be a dermatologist. And the reason was, is because as a teenager, I had acne. Okay, now you see how the dots are starting to connect. That's kind of a pun. Um, <laughs> so um, I had acne. And, you know, it wasn't terrible acne, and I didn't have any scarring. But it really affected the way that I felt about myself. It affected my self-confidence. And, you know, I, it just really bothered me. So I felt like I could sympathize 
with other people who had visible skin conditions, and I wanted to be the doctor who would fix those problems. So I ended up here at Stanford in the Durham residency, and this was in 1984. And the first place I land, and I spend almost a year, is in, in a rotation that involved clinical studies. So now I'm back testing drugs again. And this time we're not developing drugs. These drugs have already been developed, but we're testing them on patients who come to the clinic. And we're seeing what the results are. We're seeing what sort of side effects that they're having. And it was, very, it was a great experience. I really enjoyed it. The other thing that happened at Stanford, looking back on it, that I think was kind of interesting, again, another point from another person, our chairman of our department, uh, Dr. Gene Farber, would say to us, we had grand rounds. And somebody here in medical school? No? Okay, I thought there was. Okay, in, in grand rounds, which takes place once a week, it's like a show and tell of patients. You bring in really difficult patients, you present them to all the doctors in the community, and then they give you suggestions on how to treat them. And Gene Farber, who is the chairman of our department, and all the residents were kind of huddled together in one little place, scared. And he would look at us and he would say, residents, you must find a hobby in dermatology. And then he'd go around the room and he'd point out different people. Like he'd say, this is Bob Roth. He's a Mohs surgeon. He does this specialized type of skin cancer surgery and he's world famous and this is his hobby. And over here is Bob Adams and he's written this text textbook and it's this big on allergic skin reactions and everybody refers to his textbook. And over here we have Ross Bright and he's a medical correspondent. So residents, you gotta find a hobby in dermatology. Obviously he was saying you gotta find your passion so it really becomes your career, not your job. Otherwise, he told us, you're gonna go out in the community and all you're gonna see is acne and you're gonna be bored. <laughs> So I finished at Stanford and I get out into practice and I realize, boy, Dr. Farber was right, you know? All I'm seeing is acne. And I wasn't seeing epidermolysis bullosa and erythema multiforme and mycosis fungoides, all these very rare exotic diseases that we treat right over there in the med center. But I was seeing acne and it wasn't just teenage acne like I'd experienced. What was shocking to me was that there were tons of women who I was seeing who had acne. It was amazing, and it was women in their 30s and their 40s and their 50s. Now, at that time, the medical research told us that only 3% of the adult population had acne. And I thought, okay, if it's 3%, all 3% are coming to see me. <laughs> it's got to be more than 3%, but that's what the reports were. And in talking to these patients, I learned a lot. Excuse me one second. Good to drink water, it's good for your skin. Uh, so in talking to these patients, what I learned from them is that they hated the medicines. Not only the ones that I'm prescribing for them, but also the ones that they've tried before. Over-the-counter medicines are very drying, they're very irritating. You know, nothing really seemed to be working. They were really frustrated. So I called up my buddy, Dr. Kathy Fields, because 
she, she and I, you know, we're good friends at Stanford, and we have been great partners now for 20 years. But I called her up and said, Kathy, are you seeing what I'm seeing? Have you noticed everyone has acne? And she said, yeah, I'm seeing the same thing. And so we formed a partnership. And this was our agreement. It's very sophisticated, as you can see. And this agreement lasted about 15 years. And if you look at the date, it's, uh, what, 16 years today. So it didn't last 20 years, 16 years. 16 years today, April 19th. So we formed a partnership. And I want to just digress for one second and say, for me, it's been great having a partner. Because we share everything, we make these decisions together. You know, I think really two, it takes two wings to fly an airplane. And it, it really is helpful, especially when you look at one of Tina's points, uh, you can do it all but not at the same time. You know, life gets complicated. And I was married, I had uh, kids, and I had a job, I was working as a dermatologist, now I wanted to make a, a product. And so to have somebody to share that with just made all the difference. I don't think I could have done it without her. So for me, it was a really good thing. So I asked her, do you want to, do you think that there is an opportunity out there? Do you think that we could do better than what's currently on the market? Because people don't seem to really find that these medicines are working all that well. So we signed this this agreement and we went forward and this is what we did because we're doctors you know it's a scientific method we've got to go out we've got to ask questions and observe and we started asking our patients you know everything bring us in all your products tell us specifically what you like we learned from them and then we went to the drug stores and we went to the department stores and we looked in catalogs and we saw what all the competitive products were out there to treat acne and we made a shocking discovery. And that is all the medicines that were available for people to use were designed to spot treat a pimple. That was Oxy, that was Clearcell. And that meant, you know, that didn't really make a lot of sense. You have to see a pimple, you have to feel a pimple before you can even begin to treat a pimple. Who wants to have a pimple? You know, that didn't seem to be very effective. And not only that, as dermatologists, because we had that understanding of the physiology, it didn't make any sense from a medical standpoint because the pimple that you see today started weeks before it ever appeared on the surface of the skin. So by the time you see it, it's too little too late. So what we discovered, I think, is really akin to a dentist going out there. And if all he saw on the market to take care of your teeth were products that were designed to just treat the tooth after the cavity had formed, okay? Doesn't make any sense. So there was a big problem, and every problem is an opportunity. And we said, okay, this is our opportunity to really come up with something that makes a difference. So again, going back to our little lab there in our offices with all of our willing patients, we started testing ingredients. And we were looking at ingredients that were over-the-counter FDA-approved ingredients so that when we were going to go and create a product, that it would be available for consumers to buy. So they wouldn't um, you know, need a prescription to get it, so access. 
So there were really three ingredients. There's benzoyl peroxide, there's sulfur, and there's salicylic acid. And we experimented with our patients with all these, and we tried different things. We tried having them use them over their whole face on a really regular basis. And with benzoyl peroxide in particular, we found that a low strength worked just as well as high concentrations. People could use it over their whole face. They wouldn't get irritated, and the pimples wouldn't happen. So, okay, now we're on to something. So then we decide, okay, we gotta make our own formulas. But we're not chemists, you know, we don't have that kind of background. So we went out and we hired uh, a chemist. And we asked the chemist to do something that they'd never done before. Now they had worked with medicines, but we wanted to add in ingredients that would counterbalance a lot of the irritation, would be easier on the skin. So that was very, very challenging for them. And we worked, and I'm telling you, this took years, years and years, and was expensive for us. As you can see, oh, my slide didn't went away. Um, as you can see, we didn't really have a lot of money if we had to approve every expense over $50. <laughs> that says a lot right there. So this was an expensive proposition for us. And so we start creating the formulas. We come up after years with formulas that we think really work. Okay, now what? All right, my husband, Amnon Rodan, is the guy back there in the maroon shirt, <laughs> uh, who I've been married to now for almost 23 years. You know, he married me for his green card. I married him for his Harvard MBA. <laughs> you didn't know that, did you? Um, so, sorry. Uh, so, um, anyway, so we asked my very smart husband, you know, what do we do? Okay, we got the formulas, now what? And he says, we have a lot of really smart friends. Let's tap into them. So, you know, as you guys sit here in the room and you get to know each other and other kids at Stanford, you're going to all meet again someday. And hopefully you'll be in a position to really help each other because I think that's one of the joys of being a professional. It's really great. So we would invite our friends over and we had friends. One was a CFO, one was a market researcher, one was an FDA regulatory attorney. Um, who else? Oh, one was a marketing consultant. And they were all willing to come to dinner because my husband's an amazing chef. So they'd come, they'd sing for their supper, we'd ask them questions, they'd ask us questions. And they were really helpful in kind of formulating some concepts. One of the things that they told us or we got from those kind of dinner parties that we never would have others otherwise known is that we needed to do some market research. We had never really heard of what market research is. And we're thinking, why do we have to do market research? We tested it on our patients. Well, as they sort of told us, your patients love you. <laughs> they want to please you. They want to tell you everything is great. They're not going to tell you that they would never use this stuff. Um, and you need to find some outside sources to validate this whole concept. So we hired the friend who was a market researcher, and we were gonna do a professional focus group. Do all of you know what focus groups are? Okay, so, excuse me one second. Uh, so we're gonna do some focus groups. So we went out and we recruited women who were between the ages of 25 and 50, who had two to six pimples a month 
had seen a dermatologist, had been treated with prescription medicines, had used over-the-counter medicines, and also were big fans of department store skincare products. Okay, that wasn't easy to find. That, that's like finding a lot of needles in haystacks. Why did we focus on adult women? Because that was where we wanted, that was the market we were trying to address with Proactive. Now, again, that was a market reported as 3%, but they were completely ignored by any skincare product out there. It was like they didn't have acne. And we've also figured that if we could make products that would please them, that the teenagers would follow. It would be that aspirational type of situation. So we get these 30 women divided into groups of 10. The market researcher is there. And my partner and I are on the other side of a, one of those one-way windows. And we're looking out. We're eating M&Ms nervously and while well, she's asking them questions. And two really key things came out of that. One is, which was amazing, we never would have guessed, that all these women believed that they, really, they weren't really sure they didn't have acne. You know, how can the couple of bumps that they get every month be acne? When the teenager with the oily skin and all the breakouts, that's acne. So they really couldn't comprehend that, that they had this problem. So that was number one. The other, or still part, part two of one, is that a lot of women thought that you know, they, they didn't want to talk about having acne. Acne was an ugly problem. And they didn't want to identify with it in a group of other people. So that was sort of an embarrassment. So we had that situation, which we knew was going to present a big challenge to us later on. The other thing that we saw, we didn't hear it, but we saw it, we passed our products around the room. And they put it on their skin, and they put it up to their nose, and they just, ugh, they went like this. And when the researcher asked him, you know, would you be willing to put this product all over your face on a daily basis to treat this problem that you don't really even think you have? <laughs> what do you think the answer was? Uh, it was no. And so Kathy and I looked at each other and we went, uh, it's back to the drawing board. So here we are, as many entrepreneurs face, you know, we're like rats in a maze. You know, we come up against a roadblock. Okay, now what? Okay, we got to start over. We have to start over. We can't launch a product that's giving us this kind of a response. And it was different from what our patients had been telling us. So we spent another year reformulating our products. Finally, we get to a place where, yes, we think that they're good, okay? Okay, so now what? The biggest issue that we could see also from the focus groups is how are we going to communicate to people? How are we going to explain to them that what they had was acne? And what happened was we ended up hiring a market consultant, a wonderful guy named Rod Mora Arias. And Rod, you know, listened to us and saw, read all the information that we had on the focus groups. And he came to our dining room because that was sort of our makeshift office. And he's sitting there with his flip charts and he's drawing on it. And he says, ladies, because he always called us ladies, ladies, the acne market, it's this big. It's $250 million a year. And we're like, yeah. And he goes, that's bupkis. <laughs> that's really low. And the skincare market is this big. It's billions and billions of dollars. 
you know, $6 billion, $12 billion. And so how are we going to increase the size of the acne market? Okay, well, we don't, can't figure this out. And he says, we're going to intersect the circles. And he draws them intersecting now. <laughs> and, okay, so now when we're looking at him, okay, then what does that mean? <laughs> and then he says, and we're going to flip the tortilla and we're going to look at it from the underside. And this is what it's all about. You do not have an acne medicine. You have a skin care system that happens to be medicated, that happens to treat those pesky little blemishes on your face. Because now you've just entered the skincare world. <laughs> that sounded good to us. Okay. So now we had even a bigger market. All right, the next step was the really fun part, which is branding and naming and all that. And so we decided to go to Landor and Associates, which is you know big advertising agency in San Francisco, handle big accounts. And Kathy and I, we walk in. And the creative director, I remember taking sort of one look at us and thinking, uh, I don't think these guys are going to be able to afford our services, says, just a minute. And he runs out and he brings in this young guy who's working there. And he goes, meet Courtney. Courtney is a, bless you, Courtney is a great guy and he is, he just told me he's going to leave and he's going to open up his own shop. And you could be his first client and he'll give you a great deal. <laughs> so, we went, sounds good. So we signed up with Courtney and at the second meeting with Courtney, he has a, you know, drawing He's drawn up the packaging, he's got the name, and he says, I have found the most amazing name for you. And he flips it over and he says, it's proactive without an E. <laughs> and, <laughs> and my husband goes, because he was in the room, he was there all, all along, he goes, that's genius, that's amazing, that's fantastic. And Kathy and I are looking at each other and going, we don't get it. <laughs> this isn't what we wanted. We wanted something like Derma Beautiful. We wanted something pretty. This doesn't sound pretty. This doesn't sound like a skincare product. This, you know, that's not what we had in mind. And my husband wisely says to us, no, listen, this is a powerful word. This word describes your philosophy. It, you are not reactive treatment, spot treatment. You are proactive. You're preventing it. And this is amazing. And he looks at Courtney and he says, get the trademark on that name. So, wow, that was fabulous. So he got the name, which, of course, is an incredible name for a product. He was right. And so then the next step is money. Again, remember, we're poor. <laughs> we have no money. So how are we going to get money to get our whole product off the ground? Now we know how to speak to women. It's a skincare system. We've got the name. We've got the formulas. All of it seems to be going in the right direction. But we need money because we've got to get it out on the shelves. So we approach a lot of business people. Maybe some of them have come here and spoken to you. And they all look at us and say no. And they all had the same three reasons. Reason number one, the acne market is $250 million. That's really small. You know, they'd say to us, make a wrinkle cream, girls, and uh, maybe we'll think about investing. Number two, we were women. They didn't say that, but we knew that's sort of how they were looking at us. 
and we're doctors, and we have no business experience. And if you know anything about most doctors, we're lousy business people. So that was a big risk for them. And then the third, which was the most overwhelming of all, they said to us, okay, so you're telling me that all the treatments for acne don't work, that the way we've been treating acne you know, for decades, centuries probably, spot treating is the wrong way to do it, and that your way is the right way, that people are going to put medicine over their face. Well, let me ask you this. All these companies, Procter & Gamble, for instance, they have dermatologists on their advisory boards. So wouldn't their dermatologists be telling them this? Why aren't they doing this if this is so obvious to you, to dermatologists? And we just went, I don't know. We have no idea. And that was it. So turned down. Okay, so now what? Another roadblock, another sip of water. We go back to my husband, the big advisor. Um, what are we going to do? And he says, license your product. That's what you should do. Find a company you can license your product to because then they'll pay for the advertising and the development and put it on the shelves, get the distribution, all that stuff that you know, is beyond your capabilities and we can't afford. So we thought about who are the companies that we know the best. And the top of the list was Neutrogena. Because we knew Neutrogena because they came to all of our derm meetings. And we figured we could kind of work our way up to the top. So we were able to do that. We got a meeting with Alan Kurtzman, who was then the CEO, and Lloyd Coatson, who was the owner of Neutrogena. And Kathy and I went out and we bought our first suit because Tina said it's the little things that matter most. We had to look like <laughs> professionals. Uh, we bought our suits. We were armed. I had fun going through all my memorabilia with our business plan. This is our business plan. And we walked in and we had our products and we made a presentation and they listened and they said, you know, you have a point. And Alan Kurtzman takes this long pause and he looks at us and he goes, I know how you're going to sell this product. He said, how? On an infomercial. And I looked at him, and I thought, okay, he's testing us. He's seeing how low will you go? How willing are you to prostitute yourself to go out there and sell your product? And I said to him, Alan, we're good girls. We went to Stanford. We would never make an infomercial. Not going to do that. And he said, no, 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 you are taking it the wrong way. And, and really, we were taking it the wrong way because infomercials, actually, infomercials, beyond, before infomercials, any form of commercialism for a doctor was a big no-no. And remember, I had a job. I, my partners didn't even know what I was up to here and in my medical practice. And I had, you know, my husband and I had kids to support. I didn't want to lose my job, and I kept remembering this at Grand Rounds. Remember I told you about the Grand Rounds we had at Stanford, where after Grand Rounds, everybody would always gossip about this one woman dermatologist in, in San Francisco who advertised in the Chronicle and San Francisco Focus. And oh, she was making all this money, oh, but how terrible, how terrible. And she ended up losing her medical license. And I always felt like, 
there had to have been some sort of witch hunt out to get this woman. So that was really terrifying. That's like asking Kathy and I to hold hands and jump off a cliff. But Alan, who really is a very wise man, the CEO, says, I want you to go home and turn on the television and start watching some infomercials because I think you're going to be surprised. There's some really well-done ones, and there's one by a company called Guthy Ranker, and they make Tony Robbins infomercials, and they do a very classy job. And I'm going to tell you something. If we take you on, we're going to make you do an infomercial. You're going to do an infomercial. That's how you're going to sell the product. Okay, so we go home. We turn on the TV. We see Ross Perot because he was doing infomercials, actually, in his presidential run. Remember that? <laughs> um, and uh, we see the Tony Robbins and a lot of good ones and a lot of really lousy ones, too, embarrassing ones. And I called up another friend at J who was working at J. Walter Thompson and asked her to give me some data on who watches infomercials, who buys infor on infomercials. And so she gave me all the background data, and sure enough, it fit our demographic. It was the right sort of target market. And so maybe Alan had a good point there. But I got a phone call about two weeks after that meeting with them, and it was at my office. And it was Alan on the phone, and he said, I'm very sorry we have decided to pass on the opportunity. And I hung up the phone and I burst into tears. <laughs> I thought, okay, we've done all this work, spent, you know, for us a lot of money, you know, all these years, tried everything. We're just hitting one wall after another. This is, what are we going to do now? I mean, we didn't have any clue, okay? But then something really lucky happened. And I think luck is such an important thing that you have to watch out for and grab it when it happens. But my parents were at a judge's conference, and my mother's talking to another judge's wife, who happens to ask, so what's Katie up to? And my mother spills the beans, and she says, well, Katie and her friend Kathy have made an acne product, and they're trying to sell it to Neutrogena. She didn't know we'd been turned down at that point. And her friend says, oh, that's so interesting. You know, I have this nephew, Greg Rinker, who makes these infomercials, and maybe he and Katie should talk. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what happened. The honest truth, that's what happened. So we met, signed the contract, you know, figured Alan had, you know, this man, Alan Kurtzman of Neutrogena, is a smart guy. He, Let's give it a try. This is our only hope. And uh, so we made an infomercial, and that first infomercial was pretty funny, you know. When you look back at it, it was pretty unsophisticated, and uh, it, it's pretty funny. But it, I think it made double the sales as it was expected, and then each one, you know, was better, and then it, the brand just took off. And I'll tell you why an infomercial worked, why Alan realized that that was the way to go. Because we had to re-educate people about how to treat acne. And the process of re-educating somebody to do something in a way that they've never done before is big and expensive and time-consuming. And an infomercial gave us a half an hour opportunity to do that. 
So that was one reason. Another was acne, as I told you, is an embarrassing problem. And to go into a store and talk to a salesperson about how to treat your pimples doesn't feel that comfortable. So in the privacy of somebody's home, they could make the decision to buy. And what really helped them was that we guaranteed the results so that they were willing to take that chance. Because Proactive was selling for $39.95, still is. And, you know, acne medicines had always sold for 4 or $5. So it was a, 10 times the expense of most acne products. So the guarantee was really helpful. The other thing is that acne is not curable. It's treatable, it's controllable, it's preventable, but you can't cure it. And we knew that the average woman has acne for like 20 years and a teenager for seven years. So they're going to have this problem for a long time. So the infomercial was an opportunity to keep replenishment, reselling people the product, which is really the lifeblood of this whole business that we're in. And the last thing is we discovered that we had a real need, not a want. And as you look around at businesses, I can tell you if you can find and tap into an unmet need, that's gold. Because the want is, I want to have that cute little purse when I go to the party this weekend. But the need is, I ain't leaving the house with six pimples on my face. I've got to have that medicine. A need sells in a bad economy, a good economy. It doesn't really matter. And one of the things that Guthrie Ranker learned that it took us a while to really press upon them is that we had to get FedEx delivery. And that, now that's the way almost all the shipments go out. People want it in two days. So anyway, that is my story. I hope, you know, you can see I took a long, deep, you know, unlikely path to get right here in this uh, classroom today. And I hope it will help you along the road to your journey, too. So I'm around to answer any questions that you have. Um, So thank you. Yes. There's a lot of celebrities um, mm -hmm. advertising your products. Mm -hmm. How did you? How are you? How did you guys go about that? Well, the first one um, was located. It was Judith Light was our first celebrity. I don't know if you know who she is. She was on Who's the Boss. She's a wonderful person. And she had acne, so we gave her the product to try. A lot of celebrities, and this was 10 years ago, were really looking for products to rep. So she came on board. Then Vanessa Williams, I don't remember how. I, th I think what happens is... You know, everybody in the company start reading the magazines. There's even a website called Skinema, which is written by a dermatologist talking about all the celebrity skin issues. So you've learned, you, you watch the movies, you read People magazine, you see people who have bad skin. And then the next thing is you do, you approach their agent and give them the product and then see what their response is. We have a way more celebrities than what you see on television. Only a handful actually are willing to come out and say that they use an acne product because it's not a beautiful problem to have. But once Vanessa Williams signed on, then it kind of became cool all of a sudden. People were like, okay, this is great. I use it. You know, yeah, let me go on the show. So it, uh, that's how it's happened. Yes? Right. Maybe I missed that. How did you guys... Um 
get the funding for the infomercials. I gotta imagine it's expensive to get TV airtime. Okay, so how did we get the funding for the infomercials? Yes, it is expensive. We, and I neglected to say this, we licensed Proactive to Guthy Ranker. Guthy Ranker is a direct sales company that makes infomercials, and they, um, they do everything from soup to nuts. They outsource all of it. So they were willing. They were the only ones who were willing to take a chance and gamble and put in several million dollars into buying media time. Media time was a little less expensive than it is today. But I'll tell you something about infomercials, because I get approached all the time now from doctors who made products and want to sell an infomercial. Everybody thinks if you can sell a product, and you know, if you get on TV, you can sell a product. It's not the way it happens. I think one in 30 infomercials actually is successful enough to continue. And so it's a really tough business. Media is really expensive now to buy. But we're far more than infomercials now. We are direct selling of all different sorts. If you open most women's magazines, you'll see that we have full-page ads in there that have an 800 number. We have a website that's everywhere. We do, what, a quarter of a billion inserts into, you know, that's, I mean, so we, we're just, they're reaching out all over the place. And Proactive has gone beyond the United States now. It's uh, in Europe and Asia. Yeah. Has the product itself changed over the years? That has the product itself changed over the years? Have you improved it or have we done? Yeah. No, we haven't. It is the same product. You know what? Because if it works, it's like Coke. <laughs> you know, that formula is golden. And... Uh, that sounds bad. Uh, Coca-Cola. Uh, so, you know, if it, if it works, you just stay with it. You know, I, I think we'd be in deep trouble if we tried to change it. Yes, Tina. So what's your goal for the company going forward? You know, well, next five years. The, the goal for Proactive, Proactive is always, we have about, um, I don't know, 30 other products that we've developed. The goal for Proactive going forward is just to expand our distribution. So right now we're in Japan. I think it's somebody in the company said it's, a, I think it's number one now in Japan. So we're building, learning about it's a big, big challenge to sell in foreign countries. Every country has a rule. So the formulas that are good in the United States do not translate in Japan. There are certain things that they won't allow. Some of them you have to go through their quasi-drug review, like a little bit like an FDA, which costs millions of dollars in years. Others, you have to change the formulas completely. So there's lots of challenges, but I think really the main thing is to continue the distribution. They're doing all kinds of really amazing forms of selling the product, but it's all, again, direct to consumer. Yes? Let's push this product out there. The competitor response? Yeah, as far as this, you said it's a new system. Yes. Completely different than everybody else's. So I'm wondering who's yes. jumped on that bandwagon yes. and tried yes. to keep Yes, okay, it. so I'll tell you something that happened. We were under radar for about five years, six years, and it was amazing. Nobody, no, I don't think any of the big companies really quite got how big this product was. And it was just quietly building and building and building. Neutrogena came out, of course, because they copy us all the time. Uh, <laughs> Neutrogena came out with their version of Proactive. 
Okay, none, nothing has even come close to the sales. But there's a lot. If you go into Walgreens, you even see people put it's so maddening. They take pictures of proactive and they put it on the box. And they say, you know, compare to proactive. And they've got our pictures on the box. And then they go through the ingredients and show how the ingredients are the same. But nobody's been able, they may have similar ingredients, but that does not mean that the formulas are the same at all. It's like a recipe. It's a very special blend in the way it's manufactured. So nobody has our recipe. So, and by now we've got enough, you know, loyalty. It's, it's the brand. So it's been okay. But we're always watching for competitors. <laughs> yes? Did you ever find out why Neutrogena passed? And also, did you think about going to the celebrities first instead of the Um Okay, so the question was, why did Neutrogena pass, and do we think about going to celebrities first? Well, Neutrogena passed, what I found out is that they were in uh, being acquired by Johnson & Johnson at the time. So we didn't know that. They couldn't tell us that, but that was a big part of it. I think they also, you know, I've learned, because from Proactive, I have, uh, Kathy Fields and I have developed another brand called Rodan and Fields, which my husband ran that business for us. Uh, for three years, and we were acquired by the Estee Lauder Corporation, that brand, which is a small brand, not proactive. And what you see in big companies is the wheels move very slowly. And they're very comfortable in one form of distribution. So I'm sure they're thinking infomercial is the way to sell it, but we don't know anything about making an infomercial. And so I'm sure that was sort of a daunting task for them. And as far as the celebrities go, no, we never thought about going to celebrities. I mean, celebrities, you need money to pay them. And, you know, I I, I don't know that that would have done much for you. It sort of had to get the whole product going. And we didn't really know how powerful the celebrities were going to be until Vanessa Williams came on the scene and P. Diddy and Jessica and all those people. And it's amazing. They really, uh, they, they, they really, it's all about the celebrities now. So, yes. Chemist. Well, it wasn't, I mean, it was expensive, but it wasn't that expensive. We, we developed this, but we started in 1989. We uh, licensed it to Guthrie Ranker in 1994. So between those five years, we spent a total of a little over $30,000. That's it. So, which to us was a lot of money. Okay, fifty dollars. Remember, <laughs> so we slow. So the chemists, you know, I mean, they were expensive for us. But looking back, you know, obviously it was the best investment we ever made. The other thing I, I want to mention, and I didn't mention in the talk, is about the formulas. And my husband told us, you know, you need to own the formulas because we were going to create something that we wanted to have as an asset. And most of the time, when you are doing product development, creating skincare formulas. The lab wants to hold the rights to it and have the option to manufacture it. And that's, and you don't have to really pay them for their development. But you get, as long as you manufacture it with them, you get to use it. And we didn't want that. So we found independent chemists where we paid them out of pocket, as painful as it was, to come up with that $30,000 over five years. Um, and they created it, and we owned the formula, and they have no rights to the formula. Yes. Talk about, uh, a little bit about growing the organization. So, you and your partner began to fight. How did you kind of build your team? 
and bringing the, like you have to rel relinquish control at some point and give someone else who had more business experience other uh, reins. Okay, so kind of how our whole organization operated. Well, the organization, two thirds of the organization is here. <laughs> it's me, my husband, it was my partner, um, and my husband was only involved sort of peripherally. Um, actually, we've really gotten along really well. It's really amazing. And I think people are always astounded because there's always partnership issues. And, you know, we're there. We're doing something together. We both, both benefit. So, you know, there's, we kind of leave our egos at the door. So not really any problems there. I mean, little disagreements or things, you know, but we pretty much agree on most things. Um, as far as building our organization, we never had to because what we did is we did all the development. We created it. We came up with this whole plan, this whole plan, <laughs> as big as it is, um, and then we licensed it. So Guthy Ranker is now the big organization, and they've really grown in response to Proactive as their big uh, product. And so they've, you know, obviously hired on a lot of people to work in international, people to, you know, help in product development and manufacturing and all those. So they've just kind of grown as the needs have grown. So the team really, the only people we ever hired were people, you know, that were outside consultants like the Rod Mora Arias and the guy who named the product. And I think that's a really good point, uh, an opportunity to make a point because it is all about the team and you can't, it's really hard to do this on your own. And I know that Kathy and I could not have done it without all this amazing help that we got from business people who were far more experienced and listening to what their advice was. So, yes? Did you ever try to get um, initial startup money instead of paying out of pocket? In the yeah, we did. That was the part where we got turned down by all those business people because they couldn't imagine how we could come up with an idea that was the right way to treat acne and Procter & Gamble hadn't. So that was a big stumbling block for us. So yes, we definitely tried. We didn't get very far. <laughs> yes? Why haven't you uh, taken the product into retail channel yet? Oh, okay. That's a great question. Because retail channel would cut all the profits by half. You couldn't, it's not like you could suddenly start selling proactive for $80. So direct to consumer, there's no middleman. And you don't have to, like, you know, our Rodan and Fields product with Estee Lauder, uh, it sells, you know, I don't know, we have a product, say, say a product sells for $60. We sell it to Nordstrom at uh, $30. So they take half, we get half. So... And then you have, on top of that, you have to pay for the advertising. See, in this case, all of the advertising is done results in a sale. How beautiful is that? <laughs> That's pretty amazing. So, you know, rather than do an advertising campaign uh, in, you know, a magazine and then tell people to go to a store to find the product, you know, and then they're suddenly, you know, looking around at all the other products that are out there. So... See, it's not a very efficient way, but it's really efficient to sell direct to consumer. There's a great book actually about about that uh, called "Your Marketing Sucks" uh, by a guy named Mark Stevens. Um, actually, we've just hired to do a product uh, project for us, but it's a really amazing book all about kind of how to sell things. 
Any more questions? No? Um, on behalf of Basis and STVP, we'd like to thank Katie for joining us today.